Good evening. Welcome to the LSE for this evening's event. I'm Dr. Constant Locke. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Management, where I teach organizational behavior, cross-cultural management, and leadership. So I'm really looking forward to listen to Gail's talk. Um, let me first introduce her, and then um, she'll do her talk, and then after that, we'll take questions. So Gail Kelly is the CEO and Managing Director of Westpac Group. She began her banking career in 1980 in South Africa, and by 2001, she had held various senior management roles in a broad range of areas, including retail and commercial banking, strategy, marketing, and human resources. She spent the last 12 years as CEO of two Australian banks, St. George Bank from 2002 to 2007, and Westpac from 2008 to the present day. So um, under Gail's leadership, Westpac Group today serves 12 million customers, employs around 35,000 people, and has over 1,500 branches. It's one of the 15 largest banks globally, with market capitalization of more than 100 billion Australian dollars. Its return on equity, um, as of the last market announcement earlier this month, is 16.5%. It's one of a handful of banks globally with an AA rating. And it was voted the world's most sustainable company at the World Economic Forum in Davos earlier, earlier this year. Um, in April of this year, Westpac launched a 100 million Australian dollar philanthropic fund to fund 100 annual university scholarships in perpetuity in a number of key areas for Australia's growth, including technology and Asia. And here's a fun fact. Um, Westpac was Australia's first company and will be celebrating its 200th anniversary in 2017. So back to Gail. In addition to being CEO of Westpac, Gail is also chairman of the Australian Bankers Association and sits on the Business Council of Australia, the Financial Markets Foundation for Children, the Sydney Cricket and Sports Ground Trust, the Prime Minister's Indigenous Advisory Council, and is also the CARE Australia's Ambassador for Women's Empowerment. I don't know how you find time to do all this. Um, internationally, so that isn't all, internationally, Gail sits on the Global Board of Advisors at the U.S. Council on Foreign Relations, and she's a member of the Group of 30. So I googled the Group of 30 because I had never heard of it before, and um, wow. It's, it's essentially 30 members of like the most powerful financial people in the world. The governor of the Bank of England, the president of the Federal Reserve, the governor of the Bank of Japan. Um, and as you might imagine, Gail is the only woman. Um, so what they do is they meet twice a year to discuss international economic and financial issues, and they explore the international repercussions of decisions taken in the public and private sectors. They examine the choices available to market practitioners and policymakers, and they join the policy debate by publishing special reports. So, whew. That was a very impressive CV. Um, so I am very pleased to introduce to you Gail Kelly. She will be speaking on Reflections on Leadership, a bank CEO's perspective. Oh, and please, could you put your phones on silent um, just so we don't disrupt the event? And also to let you know this event is being recorded, and it will hopefully be made available as a podcast if there are no technical difficulties. Thank you. Thank you.
Well, good evening, everyone, and what a lovely introduction. Thank you so much. Uh, Very, very gracious. So uh, I must say what an honor and privilege it is to be here today. I've always admired the LSE so much. I've never been to the LSE, so to have been invited to deliver a lecture or a talk here is indeed such an honor. So thank you for coming along to, to listen to me. My theme today is Reflections on Leadership, a Banking CEO's Perspective. So let me start with saying why I've chosen to talk about this particular topic. And there are two central reasons. The first is that I've always been interested in leadership uh, all of my career. It's almost 30 years ago, I'm giving away my age here, but almost 30 years ago that I completed a Master of Business Administration at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. And uh, my research report at the time was centered on leadership. I did a study that actually had a look at uh, the CEOs of the top South African companies and then extended that to the implications for the development of high potential employees. So that goes way back. Of course, I'm also interested because if you think about what my day job is, essentially, every single day, what I'm seeking to do is to try to be a leader. And uh, particularly over the course of the past 12 years of being a CEO of a bank, I feel like I've had lots of time to learn and absorb and take insights on board and practice and hopefully you know, get a little bit better. So that's the interest piece of why I've chosen to speak to this topic. The other element, of course, is I think it is such an important topic. Uh, All of us would be aware, if we reflect back over the past 10 years, uh, the extraordinary and and very manifest failures of leadership uh, that we've experienced and the very significant consequences uh, economically and socially as a consequence of, of those failures. And most notably of all of the sectors where there's been evident failure of leadership has been in my industry, uh, the financial services industry. Of course, this is an industry that's undergoing significant stress and significant challenges. And uh, I think a new model of leadership is clearly going to be required to actually rebuild this industry, its reputations, and take us forward into the future. So hence, I think it's both an interesting topic, but also an important one. Now, I've got four key areas that I'd like to discuss uh, tonight. And the first one is in the area of vision and purpose. So I think a central role of the leader is to work with the organization and, and establish a very clear vision and purpose for that organization. It's, it's important not just to determine what the organization is there to do, but very important also to understand the why, the purpose of that organization. Because essentially what leaders do is they help to create meaning for others. So having established the, the purpose, the, the why of the organization, why does it exist, leaders then need to communicate that very clearly and succinctly, very easy to understand language, and in a way that people can align with it, can understand it. And most important of all, of course, is that you then need to put substance behind those words and actually deliver in action uh, the practices of that vision and of that purpose. So let me explore that a little further with you in the context of the Westpac Group, just to explain how we've set about trying to do this over the course of the past uh, six or seven years. So we started out with engaging across our organization a very wide group of of stakeholders, of course our our internal teams and external stakeholders as well, and uh, came up with and ultimately signed off on a vision, a very simple vision, and the vision goes as follows, that Westpac wants to be one of the world's most respected companies, helping our people, our customers, and our communities to prosper and grow. So you would have noticed I paused on the word helping, and I pause on that every time I speak to this vision, because in that very word is the essence 
of the purpose of the organization. The essence of the purpose of a bank, fundamentally, is to help build the communities in which we operate, to help support the customers to achieve their dreams, to achieve their financial goals, help our own people to have careers that are supportive, careers that are empowering, careers that are developing, and of course help and sustain communities. That's at the very heart of what banking is about, providing intermediation, but that's kind of banking speak, so it's much better to talk fundamentally around helping. So that's the vision that we've described. Now, as you mentioned, we're almost 200 years old, which is Australia's oldest, oldest company and oldest bank. And so this concept of helping plays directly to the, the DNA of the firm. Uh, we opened our first branch in the Rocks, if any of you know Sydney, uh, back in 1817, pretty much at the same time as people were convicts, were arriving from the UK and Scotland and uh, and England and various elements, and, uh, and, and starting uh, the Australia as we know it today. And so the Bank of New South Wales, which was the name that Westpac operated under at that time, has steadily grown from there. So as the country's grown and as the country's expanded, so the bank expanded. And as a consequence, that, that, that philosophy of helping, of empowering, of being connected to the communities that was there to support is fundamental to, to Westpac and what it stands for, through wars, through depressions, through fires, um, through, through high, highs and lows. Westpac, the Bank of New South Wales, now Westpac has been there to support. The communication piece. Well, everywhere I go, it doesn't matter what the forum is, forums with customers, forums with shareholders, uh, forums with our people, I talk about our vision in these very simple and easy, way, easy to understand ways, and I talk about our purpose, the central element of helping, and try and bring it to life, of course, with stories and, and to make it real. Uh, we certainly aim to make it fun. One of the things that I do, uh, and this is just a fun element, we connect the, the vision and the purpose, of course, to the values and, of course, to the strategy, so they all hang together. And we talk about all of that with our teams, and then I, I challenge them to what I call the elevator pitch. So what that means is if you land up arriving simultaneously with me in my building uh, and we get into the elevator together, I'm going to say to you, lock arms with you and say to you, right, let's do the elevator pitch together. So in the time frame from ground floor up to my office, which is on the 21st floor of my building, we're going to do the elevator pitch. We're going to talk about the purpose, the vision, and the five planks of the strategy. And uh, you know, people love it because it's a bit of fun. It's not a threatening thing, but perhaps it is. But <laughs> there's some people jump in the lift with me and say, "Can I do the elevator pitch?" And you can see a few people that kind of hang back, saying, "Oh, I'm not sure I know it." But it's a fun thing, actually. My husband Alan, who's here with me today, uh, uh, he, he of course is aware of this kind of uh, approach. And uh, so he was in the lift with me, and some unsuspecting young lady got on, and we were going down this time, and she got on in level 19 or 18. And Alan said to her, "Right, tell me." Me, what are the four values of the Westpac group? And she looked at him and she looked at me and she smiled and she said, actually, there are five. <laughs> <laughs> and then she proceeded to rattle them off. So in that way, seeking to actually create alignment, I talk to my, my people and I hold myself accountable to this as well. What am I going to do today as I drive into work? I'm considering what will I do today that will help Customers, What can I do today that will help fellow team members? What can I do today to make a difference in the lives of the community? And as I go home, test and reflect what are the, those things that I did today that actually made a difference to enable this purpose to be, to be in practice. It's, it's fantastic as a consequence for me to see, and you would all do employee engagement surveys and that sort of thing. We do it every year to all of our 36,000 employees, and we have universal response rates. And 97% of our people give a positive response 
to the question of, I understand how my work aligns to the vision and the purpose of the company. If you can get that type of high level of alignment, that there's a, I understand how my work, wherever I work, whether it's risk or finance or frontline or technology, relationship management, legal, I understand how my work supports the vision and the strategy of the firm. It's an incredibly empowering thing and really brings an enormous amount of discretionary effort uh, into play. The last piece, though, the really critical element is the substance piece, so making sure that it's not just what you say, it's what you do that actually matters. And so we work really hard as an organization to hardwire into our policies and our practices that we live this vision. So, for example, product decisions, new product features, the way we market or advertise them, to make sure that we're ticking the box and evaluating all of those in the light of, will this help a customer? Making sure there isn't the small print or the fine print uh, that, that can be involved or is perceived to be involved in a number of these sorts of promotions. That our risk appetite statement, first and foremost, is about putting the customer at the center of our business, doing the right thing for the customer. In our strategy, we've adopted a strategy of literally going back to basics in banking, bringing back the bank manager. Some of you may remember the old construct of having a bank manager in a community, someone who was deeply respected for the role that he played within the community. So our bank managers are given a, a full set of authorities and accountabilities to run a business locally in that community and as a consequence be directly engaged in that community. And that's why when it gets to, as you know in Australia we have uh, uh, perennial bushfires and floods and all sorts of natural events that occur, particularly in summertime, when those sorts of events occur our bank managers are the first out the door to actually make sure they've opened the branch or they've set up a temporary branch or they're out there carrying cash or providing depot support or doing whatever's required to actually make a difference in that community in that time of need. And they can do that because they don't need to ask for permission or ring head office or find out what the protocol is. They're empowered to do what is required in that circumstance to help meet the needs of that community. So very, very powerful. Let me then move to my second key theme. So vision and purpose, the first one. The second key one is the importance of leaders being able to adapt to change. Indeed, not only adapt to change, but thrive in change and be able to lead transformational change. I think there's an old management construct that talks about make sure you control all the inputs because in that way you can control the outputs. Well, as we all know, that just doesn't exist today, especially in a very dynamic and challenging world such as we encounter in banking. And let me say, I think there are two very significant forces of change that are directly playing through and impacting on banking businesses as we speak right now. The first one I'll call the new rules of banking, which is effectively dealing to the post-financial crisis, the aftermath of the financial crisis, and the new regulatory requirements that, that, have, that are coming our way. So new capital, new liquidity, uh, new processes, new governance, new control frameworks, a range of new mechanisms that have been put into place to ensure that such a crisis never happens again. This brings with it new business models and, and totally transforms the way a bank is run. And you would be very familiar with that and be seeing that playing out right here and now uh, in, in the UK. So that's a very big change that's impacting banks. The second major change I'll call, for want of a better word, the new world of banking. And this is change that's being driven by technology. 
and being driven by the convergence of technologies, digital, mobile, uh, cloud computing, uh, big data, and, and the rapid pace of adoption that is occurring around the world and what that's meaning to service industries. It's, this is very customer-led. Customers are expecting and requiring their service businesses to operate differently and to provide services differently. So these are two major forces of change happening simultaneously. And as you can probably immediately work out, they don't always sit together that well from a point of view of a leader trying to effect change in the organization. But let me explain that a little more. The first one, the new rules of banking. Well, if you think about that, it's all these new elements to make us stronger. And if I'm a CEO of a bank, what I'm seeking to do is embed a culture effectively of risk is everyone's business across the firm. So moving away from the concept that risk is a department of the bank or a function of the bank, it's now everyone's business across the company. And we talk about a model of three lines of defense, whether you're the first line of defense, which is the front line, the people looking after customers directly, relationship managers, line managers, you're accountable for the business, you're accountable for the risk that you're writing and the business that you're engaging with your customers. The second line is your risk function that are accountable for the policies and practices to support the front line in managing the risk in supporting their customers. And the third line, of course, is the assurance functions, both internal and external assurance functions that you have. So new approaches, and with that, new compliance, new controls. In fact, the resourcing that's going in around the world uh, of, of new compliance uh, uh, team members and new control approaches, new governance approaches, board members these days are held accountable for significantly more in the management of a bank than had previously been the case. So I'm painting a picture of new rules of banking that's got at its heart risk management and tight controls because the, 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 the room for error is small and you have to get it right. If you get this wrong, the consequences can be material and you see that every day in newspapers and in reports, the fines that occur, the reputational impacts that occur, the rework that occurs that sets you back. So this approach to say we have to get it right. So that's uh, uh, force number one, the new rules of banking. Force number two, the new world of banking, requires significantly different skills. It requires agility, it requires innovation, it requires pace, responsiveness, fleet-footed fleet approach. And you can't talk about innovation without also talking about failure. So there you are, as a leader, and driving the new world, the new rules of banking, while also adopting and transforming your organization around the service experience for customers in this new world of banking. The rate of change and adoption of digital and mobile, you would be aware of. It's hard to think about that only six years ago, there were no iPhones, there were no iPads, there were no apps. And yet think of how we're all living our lives today, the way we connect, the service experience we expect, how we expect service providers to know us, understand us, take the clunkiness away from that service experience. Half of our, of our credit card sales uh, in the last quarter have been done through digital. Increasingly, customers want us to know them. They expect us to know them. They don't expect to be passed around from pillar to post and tell their story all over again. They expect us to empower them, that they can empower themselves and, and manage their own affairs themselves without needing to go to a bank to have that done for them. So a, a complete revolution. Now how does a leader try and balance both of these factors? Because they're both simultaneous and they're both transformations and you better be able to deal to both. 
Well, there's, there's no silver bullet here, and I must say I'm learning as I go, as I, as I manage to this as a leader. I would say one central theme is recognizing that customers are at the center of both. In the new rules of banking, it's about making sure that you put customers first and do the right thing for customers. In the new world of banking, it's about delivering a service experience, a revolution for customers who are leading this revolution. They're ahead of the banks in their requirements and service expectations. So that's point number one. I think point number two for me is actually being very clear in my organization about what is non-negotiable as far as controls and compliance and risk frameworks are concerned. Things like financial controls are non-negotiable. Know your customer protocols are non-negotiable. Occupational health protocols are non-negotiable. Standards and conduct of performance is non-negotiable. So what are those? And make sure that you have the assurance processes and the buffers and the controls to manage to those and that you don't get those wrong. But then try to create the capacity in your organization where others can innovate, where others can be freed up to actually trial, test, experiment, and have a go. And you need new people for that with new skills who often dress differently and think differently. And so we do the sort of virtual garaging and the innovation labs. We've got a team called the MAD team, called the Mobile Application Development Team. We put aside a pool of funds uh, allowing individuals to experiment and trial and test, knowing that some of that is going to get wasted. And then a new set of processes around how those, the pool of funds gets assigned, projects get up and running, projects get evaluated and reviewed. Because if you're trying to subject everything to the normal bank processes, you will never do anything. So it's a different paradigm and approach that you need to, in order to try and drive and encourage these changes. Now I think that the organizations that can actually drive both effectively and successfully the new rules of banking and be much safer and stronger and can do it right for the customer with the right culture, but at the same time transform your organizations around customers to meet these change needs. Those organizations are going to be the winning organizations and the gap between winners and losers is going to grow. The third theme of leadership that I'll touch on is an unusual one for bankers to talk about. In fact, you probably haven't heard too many banking leaders uh, mention this theme in words and talk about it. And It's not traditionally associated with bank leaders. It's one I'm passionate about, and I call it generosity of spirit. Generosity of spirit. So what do I mean by that? Well, un the, the underpinning principle of leaders who practice generosity of spirit is that they believe in the power of people to make a difference. They, they actively want to create an environment where people, both individually and collectively, can flourish and grow, where individuals are freed up and given the environment where they can best flourish, where they can best deploy their talents and flourish. There's, there, there are, there are uh, individuals who have humility, they're individuals who listen to others, they're individuals who prepare to walk in the shoes of others. Leaders who are, they, they're not selfish, they're not binary, they're not intolerant, they're not judgmental, they're not quick to shoot messengers, they're not quick to try and find scapegoats, and they don't sit on the fence to see which way something actually works out before they'll decide if they're going to support it or not. So at its core, leaders who practice generosity of spirit believe in the power of people, the power of people to make a difference. Let me give you two examples of how profound this can be in a business sense. Because if anyone's thinking, gosh, this is a soft leadership model, let me tell you it's anything but. 
The first thing is, it goes hand in glove with a high performance culture. A high performance culture ultimately is about ensuring you have the right people in the right roles, crystal clear accountabilities, high standards, but then you create an environment where those right people can flourish individually. What does this particular individual need to enable this particular individual to be the best that he or she can be? That environment is one of coaching, it's one of support, it's one of guidance, it's one of nurturing. It's one of helping that individual actually succeed. It's an environment where feedback is given readily and freely and honestly and transparently. You don't wait for six months or yearly performance appraisals. You don't give people bad news at that time because your objective is to coach and support that individual to actually grow and be the best that they can be. When there's poor performance, it's dealt with quickly. It comes to light quickly. And either it can be rectified through coaching and support and new learning and development, or alternatively, that it can't, in which case uh, that individual is, is dealt with appropriately early. And the culture is such that it actually deals very quickly to behaviors that are Machiavellian and undermining and negative. It just doesn't support those kinds of behaviors. And individuals root out and, 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 and make sure that individuals who behave in those sorts of ways don't succeed and don't, and don't continue to operate in the company. So this method of leadership directly supports a high-performance culture, and I can attest to that. The second key element is that this uh, method of leadership, this approach of leadership, this generosity of spirit mechanism, directly supports and enhances inclusion and diversity in leadership. So wow, wouldn't that potentially have made a difference to banking leadership if we'd had a bit more diversity and we'd had a bit more inclusion in the way we actually think about leading large organizations? And by diversity, I'm actually talking about diversity in its fullest sense. I'm talking about diversity of experience. I'm talking about diversity of opinion. I'm talking about diversity of age, diversity in terms of gender, diversity in terms of cultural background. A rich set of diversity that an inclusive culture stimulates and encourages so that you can actually, out of that, form the best outcomes. Of course, women in leadership is a particular element of diversity and, and, a, and one that I'm, as you can imagine, uh, very passionate about and actively been driving and supporting within the Westpac group. If I go back to 2010, we had 32% of our management being women. And as, we, as, as I stand here today, it's up to 43% of our total management are women. Our objective by 2017, when we turn 200, is to be 50-50, which is ultimately what we're aiming to be. Now, to get this right, we've done a number of things, but one of which is drive such an active strategy around flexibility at work. And I, I see many younger people in this audience, and I bet that's exactly what you want of your employers or future employers. And in, uh, an, a company that actually is going to treat you as an individual and help design work around your needs, whether it's study needs, or whether as a young mum you've, you've, you've got needs around your children, or whether you've got needs to support aged parents. How do we best design work that facilitates careers in this modern age? The sort of nine to five constructs around work have to change. Work can be done in all sorts of different ways in all sorts of different places. There's 62% across the Westpac group of our people, men and women, who work in some shape or form flexibly already. So we're mainstreaming this idea of flexibility, working with individuals to say, how do we make this work? I mean, what you don't want is people actually calling in and saying they're sick. Uh, you'd much rather they call in or discuss with you before and say, my son has a concert tomorrow morning and I thought I would go. And of course, the answer is, well, absolutely you'll go to your son's concert tomorrow morning. 
You know, one doesn't design work around the tiny percentage who might take advantage. You design it around the people who actually want to give of their best, want to be there, but want to feel trusted and valued along the way. And I, I talk with lots of experience here. Uh, the only way I land up being in a role such as I am today is because I've had employers who've treated me with respect and given me the opportunity as my career has progressed to shape it around my own needs. My first general manager job was in a Ned Bank in, uh, in 1991. And at that point, I had uh, four children, five and under. And so as my career has progressed from general manager and then from South Africa to Australia and through different organizations, my family have been growing up and developing as well. And I've needed, at different times, different models to actually make it work. And that's why I can be here today, and that's why I can speak so strongly about it. This drives engagement. It drives discretionary effort. We have high-performance high organization in terms of engagement uh, within the Westpac group, and, and we attract people who want to come and work with us because we have this flexibility at work approach uh, and this diversity and inclusiveness model of actually running the business. The last theme that I want to speak to you about today and I, I really thought hard about what I would call this. I initially was going to call this theme resilience, you know, bearing in mind the, the tough world out there and how visible everything that we do is, and especially if you're a bank boss. Um, you, know, you, need, you need to be pretty tough-minded and have a, a tough character and uh, wear a pair of armor every now and then. But I actually decided resilience isn't the word. So the word that I've chosen incorporates resilience in it, but it's a much stronger word. So this fourth theme... I've called it centered. You want leaders who are centered. And if you're centered, you can be tough and you are resilient. So centered. Ultimately, people that are grounded is very important in leadership. So if I were here today and giving some advice to a chairman of a bank board about his potential next CEO or giving advice to a CEO of a bank about employees that he or she wanted to bring on to that top team. I would be strongly encouraging those individuals to make sure that their potential candidates are truly grounded and centered as human beings and as individuals. I would make sure, I would ask, that you test properly to make sure that these individuals can cope with extreme pressure and extreme volatility. You want to test their absorptive capacity. Are there people that can absorb that and still be in the moment for the issue of the day? I'd ask that CEO or that chairman to test very carefully that this individual has a healthy dose of self-awareness. And when I talk to my own people about self-awareness, I talked in terms of you need to be able to be on the dance floor. This is a female agenda uh, narrative here. You need to be able to be on the dance floor, performing in the dance. But at the same time, you need to be able to stand on the balcony and watch yourself dance. And watch how you're engaging with others in the dance. Watch the impact that you are having in that scenario. So self-awareness is critical to being centered. And I would speak to that chairman or that CEO who's making these appointments and I'd say, make sure that the individual that you bring on board has the, the bandwidth as well as the capacity to deal with multiple conflicting priorities. That they have the leadership range that, to encompass the whole, to actually understand the whole, but they have the concentrated power to focus on the one or two things that matter most, that ability to be in the moment for that issue to actually follow it down. 
And I would speak to the chairman or the CEOs to say, make sure that this individual is down to earth, can call a spade a spade, and is transparent. So all of those go to my concept of centered. Now let me tell you from my personal experience what really helps in being centered. As I've mentioned to you, 12 years of being a CEO of a bank in Australia. I must say, I'm pleased to be an Australian banker, though. Uh, <laughs> and uh, coming, I'm into my seventh year of being uh, the CEO of the Westpac Group. And so I've got my fair share of scars and my fair share of tough times and my share of, oh my gosh, what's happening here? I have no idea. Uh, and how do we go forward? So I have my fair share of all of that. But what really has helped me is, firstly, that I love what I do. I'm sure you've heard that old adage, if you love what you do, it's a huge energy lift and it's a huge confidence builder. So the fact that I love what I do, every now and then I hear CEOs say the most amazing things. They say things like, I'm not paid to love my job, I'm paid to do it. I mean, like, what sort of things to say is that? What message does that send to your employees out there? If you love your job and bring that energy and that confidence to your work, you're much more likely to have people step up around you and equally take on that energy and that confidence into what they do. So loving your job, loving what you do. The second thing is I believe in what I do. I believe in the vision and the purpose. It has meaning for me. And therefore, even if I have difficult days and days that haven't evidenced that meaning or that purpose in the way I would have liked, in fact, that have definitely not evidenced that meaning or purpose in the way that it would have liked. I can stand back and say, right, in a long term, in an overall sense, we're heading in the right direction, and I believe in the journey that we're on. And I can see the signposts and the milestones that we're ticking off as we go. The, the third point that I would make um, that I think has really helped me, uh, so loving your, your job, um, believing in yourself uh, is, 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 is another one. I'm just missing the next one. Let me just think loud and clear here. Um, well, perhaps I'll get to the most important one. If I come back to the third one, I'll, I'll come back to it in a second. But the most important one, the most important one is having a very strong and grounded support network and family. A very strong... Oh, I, I, let me give you the third one, then I'll give you the fourth one. <laughs> <laughs> the third one is positive attitude. Okay, it goes with the first two, but it's positive attitude. The importance of having positive attitudes, because if things go wrong, and they do, and they certainly do if you're a leader... If you have a positive attitude, it means you can put your shoulders back and you can say, right, how do I go forward from here? What can I learn from here? What's the takeoff? What's the next step? Your positive attitude is a very uh, centering and it's very forward-looking. It's the one thing that I picked up from my father going all the way back to when I was a young girl. There's the power of having a positive attitude to life. It's a life skill. It's not just a business skill. It is a life skill. You can choose as an individual how you respond to situations. You can choose. You can choose to be negative, you can choose to blame someone else, or you can choose to be positive, you can choose to put your shoulders back and move forward. So you can choose. It's worth thinking about. In any life situation that comes your way, you can choose. Sometimes you have to pause, stop and say, I can choose. Let me choose before I respond. So you can choose. So that power of the positive thinking is a big one. But the fourth one and the last one, and it is such an important one for me, about being centered is the importance of having a strong and stable family backdrop or support network. 
For me again, I mentioned I wouldn't be here if I hadn't have had the support of employers to help me design my work and my life in an integrated way. Well, I wouldn't be here today either if I didn't have the strength and support of my family all the way along. So when you ask me what I'm most proud of in my life, I am most proud of, of my marriage, Alan, my pediatric husband, nearly 37 years, and our four gorgeous children, one of whose is here tonight. That's what I'm really, really proud of. And you know what? It's, it's the, the nicest thing is you go home at the end of the day, and, and, and you, as you drive in, you put the smile on, you think, isn't it great to come home? Do you know that feeling? And firstly, I have six dogs who leap at me with great exuberance. <laughs> and there's nothing like six exuberant dogs because, you know, they don't know anything about any nasty things in this world. Uh, and they're so delighted to see me. And then I go into the home, and perhaps a little less exuberant, but still really pleased to see me. <laughs> Are other members of the family, but it's incredibly grounding because you're mum, you're home, and you're going to sit down and have dinner and have a chat, and you're mum and you're home, and that is incredibly grounding and incredibly centering. And so, if I'm employing really senior people in really senior roles, I want to know something about that individual and how grounded they are in all elements of their life, because being grounded in that context means you can actually perform and bring that energy to work every single day. It's mutually reinforcing. And as I said, you are just mum at home. So just to finish, I, I talk about driving home and driving in the garage and encountering the dogs. But I, I usually, when I'm driving over the harbour bridge on the way home, will put a call in to say, I'm on my way, I'm coming. And invariably, especially when they were younger, one of the children who'd answer the phone would say, oh, good mum, what's for dinner? <laughs> so, you know, that is really grounding. And in my poorer days, I'd say, well, hang on, who's been here working all day? But that's, that's incredibly grounding. So, look, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to me today. It's uh, been a pleasure to talk to you about uh, leadership in today's times. Thank you. Okay, so let's open it up for questions. And um, if, when you ask a question, if you could just introduce yourself, say who you are, where you're from, and wait for the microphone. Thanks, Gail. I'm Tony. Um, I'm wondering if you think the new regulations around liquidity and capitalization and ring fencing go far enough to help mitigate the next downturn? I think they are, they are absolutely far enough. Um, I think there's been a lot of careful thought that's gone on for several years by very talented people uh, to actually develop what's required here. Um, the, the impact cumulatively is quite material on banks, so they do need to be phased, and that's exactly what's happening. And as the, they're being implemented, uh, on occasion, some unexpected element emerges that then needs to get dealt to. But I, I'm certain whatever the next issue that pops up is going to be is going to come from somewhere else. Uh, you, you heard me talk about the new world of banking. Well, there are new entrants coming into banking. In certain geographies around the world, there's the growth of shadow banking-style systems. There are new players that are unregulated at this stage, and regulators are often one step behind that, that are engaging in direct activities that banks do. So I suspect that the, 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 next, the next crisis won't come from the traditional banking system where these new rules of banking are being applied. Um, it, it rather raises the question where the leadership was in 2008. Leadership from whom? Well, I, mean, I, I mean, I guess, was it regulators who, who, who dropped the ball, especially in the US? Oh, look, there are lots of, as you know, multiple 
issues that actually led to uh, the global financial crisis and certainly uh, the banks have got a lot themselves to look at uh, in the context of how that global financial crisis arose in the first place. I think at its very heart, I mean I could give you a long answer, I'll give you a short one, at at its very heart what bankers missed is this purpose and hence I made a big point of talking about the purpose in, in, my, in my remarks. So what bankers missed largely is the, their purpose which is supporting customers and supporting communities. We are here to play a role in the economy and you want a strong stable banking system to make a strong stable economy and bankers often missed that purpose so that's a short answer. Thanks. Here. And if you could just give us your name and affiliation. Oh, Janet Sproul. Uh, as an old lady that used to have a bank manager that I could ask this question to, how do you justify failing banks and ba- bank managers getting huge bonuses? Well, I must say our bank managers uh, are not in that category at all. Uh, our, our, it, it's, you're talking more at the executive level. Our, our bank managers are, are wonderful uh, individuals that are, are, are not in that category that you're referring to at all. Uh, look, clearly, bank executive remuneration uh, has, is, is high. In an absolute sense, it's high. What I would tell you is that it's changing. Uh, it's part of the regulatory environment that we discussed earlier. There are material changes occurring. It's taking time. It's got more to go. Uh, and those changes are for the good. So in an absolute sense, the quantum is less. Uh, as new CEOs are being appointed or as new executives are being appointed, they're coming in at a lower total quantum. But the mix of the remuneration has also changed quite markedly. So there's more in the way of deferral. There's more in the way of hurdle remuneration. Uh, there's more in the way of remuneration that can be clawed back uh, or taken away in, if, if subsequent events occur. Uh, so remuneration is going in the right direction, which is um, more in the line of shareholders' interests, and the overall quantum is coming down. It's hard to justify. I completely accept Good evening. Thank you. I especially like the jump as well, which was really good to see from a speaker. (laughs) Um, All the corporations, all the corporates have vision. They have got the statements and they have got the plans. They talk about transformation and so on. Uh, And some of the things that you have mentioned, yes, they sound very straightforward, common sense. But where are the challenges to really stick to that vision, uh, be grounded, and you also part of that group of 30, so I'm sure you must be talking about these things. So what makes it, you know, the, the vision to go up the track? And why it is difficult to, to follow the vision, really? Well, I, I'd rather answer that in the, in the positive, almost. Uh, it, it's, things go off the track if you don't have clear vision and clear purpose and clear alignment and behaviors and leadership behaviors lined up against it. We, we, every single one of our, of our people, whatever their level in the organization, are evaluated in terms of their behaviors. So they're not only evaluated in terms of their output, they're evaluated in terms of their behaviors. And their behaviors are linked to the values of the firm and they're linked to the outputs that we're seeking to drive. Um, and so the alignment is all the way through. Simple, clear vision, simple, clear purpose, embedded in a hardwiring sense into policies and practices and risk frameworks, the way we recruit people, the way we induct people, the way we train people, the way we remunerate people, the way we provide feedback to people. So that's, 
That's the model, I think, that best supports you from not going off the track. Now, clearly, individual areas can go off the track, but in a holistic sense, there's alignment from the board all the way through the organization of what we're trying to do, what the values are, and what's expected. Things go off the track when that's not clear or when the customer element gets forgotten in it. Sorry, there was in the back there against the wall. I second the, the lovely dance. Um, I was very struck by the, the last couple of points you made, um, particularly about the balance of work and home life. I don't work in the city, but I know some people do. The reality here in London, at least, is there are a lot of dysfunctional family lives. Separation, divorce rates are fairly high. Um, the wives even sort of time their divorces um, around bonus payments, at least in the past. But I, wanted, I want to take one thing with you. I was really, really struck by a friend who actually works in the city, and recently she told me she actually knows someone, a woman, um, who paid another woman to be a surrogate mother. It's not because she can't conceive. The thing is, she's worked out the NPV of taking maternity leave to have a child, and she works out it's better off to pay someone to be a mother. Uh, this is probably an extreme case. i just like to sort of hear your, your views and sort of outside it, not, not, not being a, a, a Brit from the sort of Australian perspective. <laughs> Thanks. Look, I think that is, that is an extreme view. But as you heard, and I've, I talk about this a lot internally, I think there's nothing more important than ensuring you're living a whole life. I don't compartmentalize my life around work and business. I'm living a whole life. My children, my home are fundamental to my whole life. I see, like you do, so many scenarios where senior people who've put everything into their career actually land up at the end uh, without a family, uh, distant from their children, uh, separated from, from, from relationships that actually matter. And I think it's an everyday thing. Every day you've got to prioritize what really matters in life. What are the really big rocks in life? What are the really important things in life? And I think family and relationships and friendships matter. You know that the, the, the Stephen Covey matrix of urgent and important. And we spend an awful lot of our time in those quadrants that are urgent and, and important, obviously. We spend a lot of time in things that are urgent and not important at all. But we often neglect the area that's important but not urgent. Important things are looking after the foundations of your life. Ultimately, what matters for you in life is you want to ultimately be happy and fulfilled as a human being. And we all choose different paths to achieve that, but you want to be happy and fulfilled as a human being. That means living a whole life. And, and you, you see the benefit of that playing through profoundly in a business sense if you have individuals who feel supported in being able to live a whole life. So we design work to best support individuals because they they give more in that context. They're happier, they're more engaged, and they're, and they're, and they're more productive. And you know what? They, they're not struggling with the same level of personal issues. So for me, it's, a, it's absolutely critical. And I work hard on it. Um, I'm, I'm, I work hard on it. But if, you know, if one of my children had been sick or ill, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I would have prioritized that sick or ill child. From the balcony? Um, so my name is Daniel Bunza. I teach management uh, here at the LSE. Miss um, um, Kelly, uh, this was a fantastic, inspiring, uh, beautiful talk. Um, and my interest is, um, as I was hearing you talk uh, and being persuaded by your arguments and finding such resonance with what we teach here in terms of leadership, 
Um, uh, with such uh, emphasis on the positive and the things that work, um, I was finding myself uh, sort of like seeing a bit of a, a, a disconnect between uh, that wonderful world and, and the world of, 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 of financial institutions that we know here in London, both in London and across the Atlantic in the US, um, in which it clearly isn't like that. And I think that this echoes some of previous questions. And so I'm just uh, having a hard time connecting these two worlds, the one that you projected and the one that we face here today, which clearly is trying to become better, uh, but there are challenges. So I'm hoping you could comment on that. Look, I think certainly Australia has come through the global financial crisis uh, in much better shape. We went into the the 2008 period in much better shape. So uh, banks that actually hadn't got involved in, in, in... uh, uh, risky business in the way that banks elsewhere around the world had. A strong regulator, a strong fiscal position in the country. Uh, so there are a lot of reasons why the banks actually went into the period of financial distress in good shape. Now, we weren't immune, uh, particularly because of the interconnectedness of the world. So we weren't immune. We particularly were affected through the funding markets, and that had a very material impact on the banks within Australia and therefore through onto the overall economic arena within Australia. So we weren't immune and actually we're still recovering as well. The Australian economy is very much more subdued uh, than it was a pre-global financial crisis. Um, But because the banks were were strong going in and Westpac in particular was strong going in, uh, it's, it's it's been a challenge to shift to a new world, but on the other hand, I've been working with the fundamental DNA of the firm, a firm that actually has always believed that customers matter, has always believed in running a long-term sustainable business. Sustainability has been in our DNA, connection to the environment, connection to the communities that we serve, engagement with the communities that we serve. Uh, So it's been in our DNA, been working with the grain of that as we implement the new rules of banking and the new paradigm, and tended to adopt an approach that says, look, let's, we know it's coming, let's embrace it and let's get on with it, rather than actually let's fight it and let's resist it and, 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 and let's, let's try and hope it doesn't happen. So kind of embracing it and getting on with it. But we started much better. My, my words, however, are still words that I think are, are messages in the Australian context as well. Uh, of being really clear on the purpose of your organization. And in banking, the purpose has got to be fundamentally about customers and people and communities. That's what we're there to do, is to serve communities. Being really ability to deal to change, well, that's a universal thing, but I tried to outline two major forces of change that to some extent pull in different directions. Um, and and the, the strengths of the Australian system is that I think we've got the bandwidth and the time I have the capacity as a CEO to deal to the revolution that's occurring in banking through technology, whereas many of my counterparts are still so mired in dealing with today's problems of, of, of fines and, and reputational issues and capital um, shortfalls and what have you. So, so that's a strength for me as well. Um, but I think a new style of leadership... Uh, around a generosity of spirit approach that actually is is more inclusive and is more reflective of diversity is a very helpful model, not just for banks, but more, more broadly. 
that old macho management style, that old alpha male management style. I mean, I've been, as you would have, to so many boardrooms and senior business teams, and everybody in the room looks the same. Um, And it's just not encouraging of diversity and adapting to change. Down in the front. Can I say thank you for a wonderful speech? I'm so impressed by the things that you've been doing. You may have seen the buses in the east of London, Driving Diversity, put out by our Lord Mayor, and she has similar things to say to you, because that's what she's on about. And I'm fascinated, because here we're not into quotas. We want to be elected on merit. And at the moment, we're aiming to get to 25 or 30% by 2020, and you seem to be thinking you can actually achieve 50% by 2017. That's the goal. That's a stretch goal, but we're 43 now. <laughs> so, so what is it here that we are not... I mean, I tend to work with um, inspirational women, but I sometimes think invisible women is what I should be talking about because it's always the men to the fore, the male bankers. And what Christine Lagarde said about had there been more Lehman sisters, we might not have been facing the disaster that we did. I'm not a banker. But you seem to really be pushing, and you're not just doing gender either, but in terms of gender and your philanthropic gesture, I just think it's, I am an admirer. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Again, I would say the DNA of the firm is helpful. Uh, the inclusiveness and the sustainability agenda in the firm is, is, is helpful. Um, the flexibility agenda is critical. It's just critical. Uh, we're, we're designing careers for women. Uh, obviously, there's support, as you'd expect any firm to have around parental leave, childcare, those sorts of things. But we're actually trying to design careers that support people to come in and, and leave. So we have a very high percentage, something like 95, 96% of women who go on parental leave and come back, which is really, really very high. There's something about critical mass. And I'm sure many of you would know that. As soon as you get a certain level, it would have to be at least 25, I think, to start to be a critical mass. And once you get to that level of critical mass, other people want to be part of it. And there's more than one woman in a room. And so you're more encouraging and supportive of that. The women that we have, you want more line leaders as well, not just in staff functions and in HR or marketing or something. You want people that are running heavyweight line roles. Uh, and you, you tell the stories and role model. I mean, the wonderful thing in our general management ranks, uh, we, we always have a general manager of the year. And uh, um, last year and the year before was won by, by women. And the shortlist, we had six people on the shortlist, and five were women amongst general managers. And these, these, these women are star performers. They're just fantastic. So critical mass, I think, helps. And we continually have the conversations. We do diversity surveys, and we continually have the conversations about what are the barriers, what are the obstacles, what are the biases that you encounter. And we still find, particularly in middle management ranks, that you'll find men saying, um, oh, there's no bias at all. And women will say, well, actually, there is. And, and so then you have discussions about how is that and why is that. But it's not just on gender, as you say. We, we look at mature age workers, uh, um, uh, gay, lesbian community within within the firm, the, the whole richness of diversity. We have action groups. We, we understand how to how to engage in a language sense and and in a, in a way that people can be their best at work. So, a couple more questions. Um, let me take another one from the balcony in the front here. Hi, thanks a lot for your talk today. I'm an uh, undergrad student here. Um, So one of the um, obvious themes of your talk for me was this idea of knowing your path, this idea of 
um, it being clear, this idea of organization, and it's apparent in how you talk about the path of your company, but even in how you organize your speech into you know, four main parts, etc. Um, and I was wondering if you could share with us today a moment in your career where actually you were faced with you know, very high uncertainty or you know, a moment where you had no idea what your path was, potentially made the wrong decision, realized it was wrong, changed your mind, or any type of yeah, moment of uncertainty like that, how you dealt with it, and any advice you can share with us in those types of situations as a leader. Probably the, the most, there were two really difficult times in, in my most recent career. Um, the, one, the one was when I'd really recently been appointed to the Westpac Group, so that was in the beginning of 2008, so it was before the financial crisis really struck. Uh, and and we're, a, we're a large-scale bank, an institutional bank, um, multiple counterparties all the way around the world and all of us and we then no sooner uh, appointed to, to the role and we tackled a fairly major merger as well so had complexity of a major merger into a financial crisis and all of a sudden the Lehman scenario um, uh, uh, you were kind of wondering whether the financial system was going to hold up so it was a very challenging time um, and and, and my, my background had not been in institutional banking. So my background was in other elements of banking, uh, and it had, I'd been a CEO before, but my, my, my own personal banking had, uh, background had not been in institutional banking. So it was a question of, well, there's a lot I don't know here. There's a lot I'm going to have to get across really, really early. My way of dealing with that was actually making sure that I had great people around me, people that I really trusted, so the CFO, the CRO. And we ran what was, uh, we didn't want to call it a crisis committee because that gave the wrong signals out. <laughs> uh, uh, but we, we, we ran a, a, a committee, we gave it a name, but we ran a committee that met as often as was necessary. And I had the CFO run that committee because he'd been around for a long time, came from a risk background, had previously run the institutional bank. So he ran that committee. And we ran it in a way that said, uh, whatever this committee makes the decisions and it's power, power, power and it's, we run it if it's twice a day however often we needed it and it was multi-divisional, multi-faceted and we did deep dives into the various portfolios trying to understand what next might come what the knock-on consequences would be so I, I, you know, I stared into this and thought, I'm not quite sure how to deal with it. And my way to deal with it is I've, I need a, I've got a great team around me and let's put the right people in place to, 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 to drive that outcome. And my job was the center job, uh, the, the kind of calm, calmness, create the capacity for that sort of role. So, so that was one. Um, uh, there, was a, there was another time where I sort of landed up in the eye of the storm around uh, some interest rate decisions that we made that... Uh, um, uh, we didn't communicate well at all, and, uh, and, and it landed up being a very tough situation. And my lesson and learning out of that was, uh, whatever you're going to do, communicate it clearly. And the decision wasn't wrong, but the, the way we handled it was all wrong. And you kind of went into a bit of that vortex where then everything was wrong, if you know what I mean, because that's the way it works. And so anything we were doing landed up being tossed into the wrong category. And... Uh, um, it, it was a very difficult time, and I learned a lot about that strength, that inner, inner core. I learned a lot about myself. Um, I learned a lot about my team and, and how to best garner the support of the team, because it was quite personal, actually. 
Um, and I got tougher, but I certainly learned about communication. And that is you front the issue, you communicate it today, you communicate it tomorrow, you go through the media, you go onto TV if you have to, and you just keep being consistent and clear. And yes, it's an unpopular decision. This is why. Let me explain again and again and, and try and simplify or distill it in easy to understand language. We were talking about funding issues and cost of funding issues in, in arcane banker speak that nobody understood. But the consequence of that was interest rate went up. Um, and, and we handled it really badly. And uh, yeah, so I learned a lot from that. Okay, one last question um, right here in the second row. Hi. Where am I? I'm Danny. Oh, hello, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca Newton from the management department. Thank you for a really interesting and inspiring talk. Um, I love what you said about generosity of spirit. And I wondered if you could just share um, if and how you feel that can be actively developed in a leadership team. So say with your top team and, and your leadership team, how you go about really developing that generosity of spirit with people. Well, let me just discuss what we do in my immediate team. So in my immediate team, which is the, 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 the group executive of the bank, so there'd be 12 people, in that, including myself in that immediate team, we twice a year have team sessions, which can go for two days. Uh, so it's a dedicated time talking about us as a team, how are we performing and how are we engaging, because we have a view it starts with us, and we need to evidence this approach uh, ourselves, otherwise it's simply not going to actually flourish in the organization as a whole. To support that, we do the 360-degree processes that are very real. Though. We've all done 360-degree processes, which are just forms that people fill, and you know, one to five kind of categorization. That's not real. So we get external people in who do proper 360 degrees. They'll talk to each one of us about everybody else. So it's really fully-fledged, and tease out the strengths, the signature strengths, the areas of development, and we all land up, me included, with an individual plan, an individual perspective and an individual plan of things we do well, things we don't do well, and really clear. We then sit as a team and talk about it, and I will say, thank you for the feedback on X and Y, what I've learned from this is Z, this is what I'm going to work on. And then six months later, we'll talk about, this is what I've worked on, and I'll say, well, that was great, but what about this? Or, and then we have a compact, it's actually a charter. Now, lots of people have charters, but ours sits in the front of our pack, and it's real, and we talk about it, and our charter starts with, assume good intent. So that's the behavioral piece. Assume good intent about each other. That's the generosity of spirit. I will not assume that you're wanting to undermine me. I will not assume that you're wanting the best for yourself and you're going to um, uh, you know, play win-lose. I will assume good intent. Other parts of the behavioral chart is I will talk to you. If I'm unhappy, I will ring you and talk to you. I'll walk down the passage. I won't send you an email. I won't go down the chain and make everyone know I'm unhappy. Another part of the chart is if we agree something, we have agreed it, and we stand behind it, and art will go aligned. And we're not going to speak to our teams about, well, I didn't really agree, but you know, that she doesn't really understand or whatever. You don't do that. So the whole set of elements, and then we hold ourselves to account, and we hold our behaviors to account, and we call it out. We have an elephant that gets put in the room every now and then. I mean, this all sounds pretty kitsch, doesn't it? But, uh, <laughs> and it's kind of, you know, this is put, put the elephant in the room. Let's talk about the elephant, whatever it may be. So it starts, it starts there. And we, I actually actively talk about generosity of spirit, and uh, I catch myself all the time. And, and you, you, you encourage people to be aware of the impact you're having on others, the self-awareness piece. So wherever I am, 
I'm aware that, you know, people, it's amazing. You see senior people, they'll walk through their own foyer, into their own lift, in their own little world, like everyone is looking at them. Everyone, so be aware of that. And put your shoulders and smile at people and connect with them and say hello. <laughs> and say, you know, you look lovely today or, or uh, you know, what you're working on or, or whatever. Make an impact. But connect with people. So be aware of yourself. And that's a generosity spirit. People feel terrific. And people send me an email and say, I was in the lift with you today. And it was, it was so nice to meet you or whatever. You know what I mean? It's just that sense of... Of, of, of being in the moment. So whatever I try and do, I talk a lot about that too, whatever I'm doing, whether it's at home, and I've had to learn this, my family will tell you, I've really had to learn this because I used to kind of jump in the car on a Saturday morning and I'm off with one, we have, of the four children, three are triplets, so I'm off with the one to soccer and off with the one to, to tennis and, and I dropped the one and go to the other and I felt so, you know, all over the place and I've got my board pack and the phone and, and I'm kind of multitasking and I'm, I'm feeling I'm not doing anything well. So I've stopped that and said, whatever I'm doing, I'm going to do that well. And so if I'm with one of my kids, I'm doing that. And I'm concentrating on it, and I don't use my phone. If I'm having dinner around the table, I try and encourage my family not to, not to use the phones. <laughs> um, uh, so it's whatever you're doing, be in the moment for that. That's a generosity of spirit. I owe it to you to give you the best that I can be at that time. And that's the model. And so I, I talk to my people. I say, where are you? You're not here in this meeting. You're somewhere else. And don't sit behind your iPad and pretend that you're working. Uh, you know, it's like, where are you? you know, are you with us? Generosity spirit. That, that means you, you listen, you pay attention, you're in the moment. So it's things like that. You just have to keep calling it and try and by your own behavior live it. And as I say, you have to stand guard sometimes. You, you're feeling annoyed. You feel that tension. You feel that frustration. You've got to take 10 deep breaths and say, Breathe. Breathe. Because if I reflect this out there, uh, it magnifies. So breathe. Um, I can choose here. Breathe. You know, go into the bathroom and spend five minutes. But breathe. Okay, so we've run out of time. Sorry to people whose questions I couldn't take. Thank you so much, Gail, for a very enjoyable evening. Thank you very much. Thank you.